Joint representations can be tricky. Unless handled properly, they can lead to a conflict claim. In the last seven years, in fact, conflicts arising out of joint representations have been the leading cause of conflicts claims against law firms insured by ALAS. I'm Terry Garland, and you're listening to The Portable Ethics Lawyer. Today, we're joined by Randy Carrado, Vice President and Senior Loss Prevention Counsel at ALAS. Hello, and welcome, Randy. Thanks, Terry. Randy, would you start us off with the basics about representing more than one client in the same matter? Sure. The rules of professional conduct permit a lawyer to represent more than one client in the same matter, and lawyers commonly do just that. For example, co-plaintiffs or co-defendants in litigation, several individuals negotiating a deal with a third party, or a husband and wife in estate planning. Joint representation often offers advantages to the clients, primarily efficiency and cost reduction. But it also presents a number of risks and disadvantages, and these have to be explained to the clients at the outset. It would be great if you would outline those for us. Of course. The client's interests may diverge downstream so that you can't continue to represent them both. If disagreements arise between the clients, the lawyer really can't help resolve them. There's no confidentiality among joint clients. Whatever one tells you related to the matter, you have to share with the others. There's no attorney-client privilege among them either. So if they later end up suing each other, those communications will all have to be produced. And finally, it might cost more money later if you have to withdraw and one or more of the clients needs to get new counsel. So often, Terry, the real issue is not whether you can, but whether you should take on a joint representation. Of course, the safest way is to pick one client, since there will be no question of any divided loyalties. But often, clients will insist on joint representation, or it may well be in their best interests. What should or must a lawyer do before accepting a joint representation? Well, first, the lawyer must determine whether there are any conflicts between the prospective joint clients. And this analysis really has two parts. First, are there any existing current conflicts between the joint clients that are material to the matter? To take a simple example, If you're representing both the driver and passenger in a collision case, and one says the light was green and the other says the light was red, you've got a problem. So you need to evaluate whether there are any discrepancies like that at the outset, whether in the client's factual claims or their legal positions. Second, how might the client's positions diverge downstream? There are countless ways this might happen. You'll need to identify the most likely ones, consider how probable they are, and decide whether you can proceed anyway with disclosure to the clients, or if you should limit yourself to representing just one of them. Again, to take a simple example, what if co-defendants approach you about representing them both in a new case? One of them makes it clear that they intend to settle the case quickly and quietly, while the other says they demand vindication and will insist on a trial. Even if their factual and legal positions are perfectly consistent, you may not be able to represent both of them. That raises an important question. Does the mere existence of a discrepancy mean that lawyers are prohibited from going forward with a joint representation? No. In many cases, it can be resolved. In appropriate circumstances, lawyers may proceed provided that they obtain the client's informed consent. More on that later. But there are situations where the discrepancy cannot be resolved. For example, matters in which the parties hold deeply antagonistic interests present unconsentable conflicts. So, you simply cannot represent adversaries in the same litigation. What about joint representation conflicts in transactions? 
While in the transactional practice, the analysis can be a bit more complicated. If the joint clients are aligned and have common goals, then the representation raises the same issues we just discussed. But sometimes in transactional matters, lawyers try to represent parties on both sides of the same transaction. Although it's possible in limited circumstances to do that, our view is that lawyers should generally avoid it. The model rule does not expressly forbid representing both parties in the same transaction, but ethics opinions in some jurisdictions say, for example, that it's a non-consentable conflict to represent both the buyer and seller in the sale of residential real estate, or to represent the purchaser and seller in a real estate transaction. In addition, the comments to Section 122 of the Restatement of the Law Governing Lawyers recite that representing both buyer and seller would be impermissible if the parties are in sharp disagreement on several important terms or if the transaction is of sufficient magnitude to the clients. And moreover, Model Rule 1.7 says that a lawyer cannot take on a joint representation unless she believes she can provide competent and diligent representation to each affected client. Anytime you're representing parties on opposite sides of a transaction from each other, that presents a big hurdle to overcome. Switching gears and assuming that there is no conflict, how should a lawyer go about setting up a joint representation? The lawyer will have to have a frank discussion with each client to address all the issues we just identified. For future reference, we've posted along with this podcast a handy checklist of those topics. In addition to those, where applicable, you should identify with specificity where the client's interests do or reasonably might materially diverge, together with the implications of that, namely that the lawyer will not be able to help resolve the conflict and may have to withdraw from representing one or all joint clients. Lawyers will also want to include an exit plan in the event of later arising conflicts. That is, that the lawyer can continue to represent one of the joint clients and the others will obtain separate counsel. And of course, there should also be discussion on the payment of fees and in litigation, settlement. Sounds like a lot of ground to cover. Well, indeed it is. But you can't be skimpy when discussing those issues with a prospective client. And the discussion should then be documented. Our claims experience tells us that if all the necessary discussions aren't addressed and documented, disgruntled clients often claim that they never happened or were not complete. Any other precautions? Yes. Often the joint representation issue comes to the firm through an existing client or has built-in imbalances between the joint clients. For example, one client brought you the business. One is going to be paying the bill. One is a long-term firm client. One client sends the firm lots of work, or one client is running the show. There may be imbalances between or among clients on power or control, or how much they invested in the joint enterprise. These factors can raise a potential material limitation conflict. For example, one client could later argue that it was unaware that the other client was a long-term client that was a pipeline for business for the lawyer, and that the lawyer favored that client during the representation to their disadvantage. So these facts should be disclosed and cleared with all the joint clients in writing. What questions should lawyers be asking themselves before proceeding with a joint representation? Well, first, as we discussed, will the lawyer be able to maintain impartiality as to all the joint clients? Second, will the lawyer be able to show that everyone really agreed and understood the disclosures, especially on confidences and privilege? and on the exit strategy if the joint client's interests later diverge. 
In a later dispute, the lawyer will have the burden to prove that the waiver was given after informed consent. Any other final thoughts? Yes, one more. Lawyers really must be careful to avoid unintentional joint representations. So far, we've been talking about matters where the lawyer intends to represent more than one party. But we also see a lot of claims where the lawyer intended to represent only one party, but later someone else claims, hey, I was your client too. Those claims arise often, for example, in close corporation representations or in startups, where the individual shareholders or founders claim that they were clients in addition to the company itself. In situations like that, lawyers need to make it clear in writing who they represent and where there's any possibility of confusion, who they don't represent. Are there any other resources you'd like to recommend? Yes, in addition to the checklist, we posted a PDF of a New York City Bar ethics decision on this topic. It's New York City Bar Opinion 2017-7 on the landing page of this episode, which is available to everyone. It covers much of what we talked about today, and there are additional resources available from Alas to general counsels and lawyers at firms that we insure. Thanks, Randy. Glad to do it, Terry. Until next time, I'm Terry Garland, and this is The Portable Ethics Lawyer. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2018 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.